Well, open your Bibles this morning, the book of Job, chapter 1. Job chapter 1. I was joking with my wife this week um, about preaching through Job. Uh, I'm sitting there Tuesday in my office. I just finished a meeting, and I was eating some lunch, and I look up, and there's all these fire trucks pulling into our church parking lot. Like, that's, that feels unusual. Um, sirens going, lights going. So I get up and I go out, and I'm like, hey, guys, can I help you? And as I walk outside, they're all rushing behind our office building, um, and our whole field was on fire. I'm like, this seems unusual. Um, I had no idea, but the smoke was so thick and the wind was blowing that way, somebody in Concord Place had called 911, and there's no real damage. The, the whole field is burnt. If you want to see scorched earth policy, it's over there. Uh, Sandy helpfully said, clearly my studying was generating so much heat that this is what happened. Um, so I'm like, oh, that seems unusual. Uh, I've been here 15 years, first time that's happened. Uh, they, the best they can guess is somebody threw a cigarette down somewhere or something. Um, that was not me. <laughs> um, uh, and so then I'm like, oh, that, that just feels unusual. And then uh, Tuesday, that, that night, I'm driving my son and his friend home from lacrosse practice, and the battery light comes on in my car. Uh, and so I had to change the alternator in my car. And I, so Thursday, I looked at my wife and said, I'm not sure if picking Job was the best book to choose at this point. Um, now, you know, and we all know theologically, I hope we all know theologically, that's not the way it works, right? God does work things into our heart and our lives, uh, but it's not like if I suddenly preached on a passage full of blessings that, that that's, you know, you know, suddenly we're all going to have 10 kids and more camels and sheep than we can shake a stick at. That, that's not the way it happens. But I will say you, tell you the events of life, God does use his word to help you work through and even process through, and he certainly is using Job in my life in a number of ways that way. I was terrified to get into the book of Job um, just because last year, just to be frank with you, was the most painful year of my life. I mean, losing dad, losing grandma, wife with cancer, it was just brutal. Uh, and so I, I remember telling some friends I was scared to get into Job just as I'm still processing through the grief of my own life and just wrestling through that. Am I going to be able to emotionally get through uh, Job? And so uh, each week I come to the pulpit a little afraid. I'm just going to break down in tears. To, but, but just so blessed, that even these last three weeks of study. And so this morning we hit this kind of critical mass moment in Job. Tough spot, tough passage um, that starts to pull back the veil of heaven a little bit for us and help us to see some things that are hard to understand and complex. And yet uh, I really, really, truly believe that it will be a balm to hurting souls and or because either you're in suffering, headed into it, or just came out of it, um, a good aid for you in weeping with those that weep, rejoicing with those that rejoice, and ministering to one another's souls and hearts, whether it's your family, friends, or neighbors who are maybe suffering. So Job chapter 1, we're going to work our way through verses 6 through 12 this morning. And so if you follow along in your Bibles with me as I read, uh, the narrator tells us this part of the story. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now, um, from this point forward, I'm just going to match, actually, the way the Hebrew does it here, and it puts a definite article in front of Satan. It's the Satan. Um, and I'm going to unpack that a little bit more, why that's maybe even important later. But he says this, continuing on, The Lord said to the Satan, From where have you come? The Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to the Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then the Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? 
Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to the Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So the Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. When I was in seminary, I would do a fair amount of counseling with college-age students about dating and relationships. Uh, One of the most dreaded but necessary conversations was what we called the DTR, define the relationship conversation. Uh, It it was hard, and people were scared of that moment, particularly guys. They they understood uh, it would define where they're at in the relationship now and where they were headed. And it could move a guy from friend zone into frozen zone just as quickly as it could move him from friend zone into dating world. Uh, meanwhile, the girls would struggle uh, because they seemed at the mercy of this guy, whether he could or would lead, um, and whether he would ever grow out of middle school antics of relationships. Uh, Tim and Kathy Keller, in their book on marriage, uh, they were at that point. She was ready to dump him and move on and needed a DTR kind of conversation. Uh, the always authoritative website, uh, Wedded Wonderland, Um, offers ladies a list, I think it was like 38 ways to tell if your boyfriend is the one and if he's into you and and offered some some suggestions to discern that. Here are some of them. Expert advisors advocate girls to do things like this. Run an hour late for an appointment. That will test his patience. Um, Ask him to pick up a friend of yours at an inconvenient place, time, or both. That will test his loyalty. Uh, Ask for a ridiculously expensive gift. This will test his willingness to spoil, to spoil you now and in the future. Shop for over three hours with him. I, I'm beginning to think what at Wonderland is the Satan. Um, <laughs> shop for over three hours with him. This will test his ability to help you. Uh, ask him to buy you an outfit. This tests, and I quote here, whether he has a clue. Now, <laughs> I, I think most of these tests should be relabeled as how to be high maintenance and drive every man away. I think that's actually what this is. Uh, I hope everyone in this room knows how unbelievably crazy these are. Uh, and these are the, the worst of, off that list. But I also want to point out that these more extreme ones are part of a list of well over 30, 35. And they all really go after one idea. Will he prioritize her over himself that's really what they're in a very worldly secular way trying to get at to figure out if he really loves her well uh, on the other side the the always authoritative mantelligence www.mantelligence offers men 14 different ways to discern whether she's the one and she loves you i could summarize seven of the 14 this way does she respect you that's what they boil down to and so even in a worldly context People understand, for, for most women, and I, and I absolutely don't want to put women in a box here, and I don't mean this meanly at all, but for most women, the question of love comes down to, will he prioritize me over himself? And the question, frequently for men, boils down lots, does she respect me? And they're just simply identifying the way that we are wired and made. But here's the real question, why are those articles even out there? And I would argue this morning, they're out there because nothing is more precious to us or seems more fragile to us than the concept of love. We all want it. We all need it. 
We all long to both give and receive it. We sing in the world songs that love is all we need, and it's what the world needs now. In church, we sing of the love of God, Jesus loves you, how he loves, and love lifted me. With an innate, uh, built-in, dare I say, created sense to give and show love, and yet it's fragile nature, it should not surprise us that the very first thing that, God goes at, that Satan goes after in the Bible is his love. He looks at Eve and he asks her, did God really say that? And he begins to argue with Eve that God's design is frankly to keep her barefoot and in the garden. Like God's love was some kind of prison intended to capture and hold her back instead of a gift to help her flourish. Well, that's the garden. What about in the very first book of the Bible that's written? So while Genesis tells us of the origins, Job is the first book that we have recorded for us. Well, it's the satanic version of Wedded Wonderland and Mantelligence. What we're going to see this morning is it's a test of cosmic proportions. It's a love test of epic proportions. It's a question about love, God's love and the love of his people. Everything is at stake. And it can be terrifying for us to consider. And this morning, we're going to run to this truth. We're going to look at this truth. We're going to unpack this truth from this text. It, it becomes foundational, cornerstone for the entire book of Job. The whole world needs to know what it means to be loved by God and to love him in return. Now, I actually mean far more with that statement than only this glorious truth, that God has proven his love to us. But what does that relationship actually look like? Because 47 years on this earth, my own package of hurts and problems, in years of counseling and discipling and pastoring souls, I've come to understand this, that if, that if my experience in dealing with people it could at all be gauged scientifically, the majority of people in this room on some level wrestle with or have wrestled with, does God really love me? Or maybe he'd put it some other ways. Why does he love that person more than me? Or do I really love him? Do I love him enough? Does he love me enough? Am I just in by the skin of my teeth? Is he really excited to be my God and to be my heavenly father? Or does he tolerate me more than embrace me? The whole world needs to know what it means to be loved by God and to love him in return. And so let's, let's start unpacking the text a little bit this morning so we can understand that. First of all, it's this concept of let's go public. Have you ever been threatened by somebody? I mean, I mean really threatened. I, and I've, I've had a fair amount of threats over the years in my life, particularly younger when I was uh, living in a very rebellious way. But um, I once had a person try to control me by threatening to tell others something they thought I would be afraid of it getting out or embarrassed. It, it was almost, it, it really was like an emotional blackmail. Um, well, if you keep doing this or if you do X, I'm going to tell people this. And their assumption was the information they had over me um, was something that would deeply embarrass me, shame me, and, and really believed that it would control me. It would stop me from doing something they didn't want me to do by means of a threat. And I knew in that moment, and I'll never forget the moment, but I knew in that moment if I caved, I would always be under their control. I'd always be bound to them and by them. And I would always live in fear of them and what they might say. What they didn't know is I really wasn't bothered by what they were threatening to share. It was something that they thought would frighten and embarrass me. 
but it didn't in my mind. And so what I did was I immediately went out and started telling people what they were threatening to say about me. I just took the steam right out of that engine. I, I, I thought, well, God knows already. Uh, others are going to know. Here you go. I'm not going to be controlled by someone by fear and intimidation over something they believe should embarrass me and shame me. But what if there really is damaging information? What if there really is blackmailable, if that's a word, information? What, you know, we see this in po political world all the time, right? Somebody's got dirt on somebody else and it would ruin their career or their future. What if, what if the information really is devastating, so reputation damaging, so influential that it has the power to destroy? Well, the common practice we know is that people will do anything to keep it quiet. The first two chapters of Job pull back the curtain on something that many, if not most people, would be terrified to deal with. In fact, one unbeliever, uh, he likes to try to mock the Bible by making old school cartoon covers of things that he believes should embarrass Christians. And so he actually pictures the book of Job like some cosmic gambling match between God and Satan to test the faith of Job. I think it's a common way people think about the book of Job particularly unbelievers. But I'm also convinced that many Christians out of a failure to understand what's really going on in Job might be afraid to deal with it as well. But God isn't afraid of Job's story. God isn't ashamed of what happens. And it's not a test of faith at all. God is not doing to Job. He's not permitting Satan to do to Job to try to figure out, does Job really believe? God already knows Job's heart. He knows who Job is. He knows how Job will respond. And God's not ashamed for it to get out. In fact, in fact, what we have here is something Job never even knew. The narrator packages, frames Job's story with this added information that to our understanding, Job may never have known. He certainly didn't know as he went through his journey of sorrow and suffering and loss. But we are told it for a very particular reason. We are told it because it begins to frame how we are to think about the story of Job and how it actually points us to hope-filled answers in the midst of inexplicable suffering. Understanding what's happening here is critical to us understanding this wonderful book. First thing we have is this courtroom scene. Again in verse 6, he says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord says to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answers the Lord and says, from going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. This setting is the throne room of heaven. It matches in some ways visions in both Isaiah and in Revelation about the throne room of heaven. The picture is stunning to us, though, because it gives a glimpse to us in the way that our God runs this world. Now, we understand God is omniscient. He knows all things. He is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's eternal. He stands not just before or after time, but he stands outside of time as the creator of time. We know that God is all-good and all-loving, all-merciful. We know that God is also all-just and filled with wrath against evil. And so we get this picture, this glimpse, this pulling back of the curtain to see how God accomplishes some of this. He is majestic, and he is in no need of any help to run this world. 
We understand from the book of John, Gospel John chapter 1, that it's by Jesus that this whole world exists and consists. And what we mean by consist is that God holds it all together so that if at any moment in time Jesus were to take his thoughts, his mind, his, his power away from this universe, he would simply cease to exist. By God, all things exist and they consist. We know this. Don't be confused here. God is in charge and he's working all things according to his will, Isaiah 46.10 tells us. And he's working all things for good, Romans 8.28 tells us. What we're getting a glimpse here, though, is some of how he is doing that. And that shouldn't shock us as, as Christians, as we study the New Testament. We understand that, for example, God works through, through the means of prayer. That's a stunning reality to us. It's a little bit mind-scrambling, right? Because um, God tells us in the book of James, there are some things you don't receive because you don't ask. In other words, in God's economy of running this world, he has chosen to give certain gifts as a response to our prayer, knowing whether we're going to pray or not anyway. He says some things you don't get because you don't pray. In other words, pray and ask these things. The effectual fervent prayers of a righteous man availeth much. Paul tells us share prayer requests, not because, and I just got a rabbit trail here pastorally, how many people do you need praying to have something happen? Unfortunately, so many Christians think you need an army of prayer warriors. Here's the problem. Sometimes, and I think Job is a good place for this rabbit trail, sometimes you can't share with an army what you're suffering. It's not like God is sitting in heaven with this cosmic scale, and if you get enough people praying for it, God's like, boom, we've got to move now. It's the effectual fervent prayers of one righteous man availeth much. There's some sorrows and sufferings you're going to go through. You don't have an army of people to talk to about them. My word, Job had helped the orphans and the widows and the unjust. We saw some of this last week, and the only people that show up are three terrible friends. Where's all the support? And so the reality is there are things that God has chosen to do as a response to prayer. There are other gifts, mercies that we know you don't ever ask for them, and he just gives them, right? But in his economy, that's what he's chosen. He has chosen through the means of evangelism to win the lost to himself. Paul makes this very clear in the book of Romans. How are people saved? It, they're saved by the word going forth. How does the word go forth? People tell people the good news. And so God works through means even as he's in control of it all. And so in this throne room scene, we're getting a glimpse into the way God runs the economy, the administration of this world. And so the way it seems to be happening is very much like we would think in a picture of an eastern uh, regal, an eastern king, who holds a courtroom, and in his royal throne room, these come, and we're going to talk about who are these people, they come in, they give reports, God gives commands, sends messengers, and he's orchestrating all of it. And so in this moment, Job has no clue this is happening. He doesn't have any idea, just like you and I have no clue of those moments when our name is uttered in the throne room of heaven. Does that not humble you? Right? So, because we know things like in the New Testament that even our groanings, we don't know what to pray. And, and the prayer there is, is just like you're so moved, broken, hurt, what have you. You're just you're like groaning. And the Spirit knows, understands for the believer and makes that into acceptable prayers and sacrifice to God. And so somehow, somehow, even this week, when I'm trying to drive home from Crooked Creek Park with my battery light on, and a nine-year-old neighborhood boy who is like chatterbox, right? So my stress level is already kind of high. 
had fire at the church, spent time studying, now got battery light, got a little boy who's like talkative, sweet, but woo-woo. Um, yeah. And I'm like, ah. And in my heart, I can't even formulate full prayers other than don't let me break down with this kid in my car. I know when I study the Bible, what was happening, and this is just so humbling, is somehow, in some way, the Holy Spirit was uttering my name in the throne room of heaven. And he's telling us, when you pull this back, Job has no idea this is going on, but this is what is happening. And so God wants us to know how all this goes down. He is not ashamed of it. He goes public with it. Secondarily, we have this group of people that says that the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Now, we can understand from a royal dynamic, a throne room, and the, and the king's throne room functioned also as a courtroom. Um, this is where cases would be adjudicated. You can think of even maybe an image from Samson, or not, not Samson, but Solomon, when the two women are arguing over whose baby it belongs to, and they come to the throne room. And so the throne room was where he ruled and majesty and worship. We know from Isaiah's happening here and from Revelation, but it's also a place where cases are determined in some ways, and that this group come to them. And so the, a fair amount of ink has been spilled over the identity of who are these people. Who are these individuals? And what's, what's difficult for us is we only get glimpses into the throne room of heaven. Um, these heavenly scene with these characters only shows up about four or five times in all of the Bible. Shows up in 1 Kings, 2 Chronicles 18 over the same story. Psalm 82 and the book of Revelation in here in Job. Here and then later in Job, uh, chapter 38, I believe, it references these guys or these individuals again. It's a gathering of created beings who report to God and who do his work on earth. We tend to call them angels. Now, that is hard for us because angel is an identity of work, much less an identity of personhood. How do I understand that? That would be like saying, and the pastor came before them. That's what I do, right? That's a role I fill. That's not who I am. Angel means messenger. And a primary responsibility of these created spiritual beings is to carry forth messages. That's what they do. And you see them show up throughout the Bible with messages. And so uh, a primary duty is as messengers of God. But we have other angels depicted in the Bible, these spiritual beings, cherubim, seraphim. Some of them are simply worshiping God. Some of them are simply proclaiming worship all the time. Uh, There are some, I'm so timid to mention this because people misunderstand this in our culture when we think guardian angels your great great aunt Thelma is not watching out for you right that's not what's going on but God in some ways uses these spiritual beings we call them angels at times to protect people and to superintend and to care for them. You can think of even the prophets, God sending them the angels to feed and Jesus coming and ministered him physically after temptation. And so we tend to call this whole spiritual realm of beings angels. And, and, that's, and, and I'm not going to fight against that. I think that's the easiest way. It's just important for you and I to understand it's an identity of a particular job that these spirit beings do, much less their identity. And so, it's, so we're going to call them angels, right? And if you have more questions about that, feel free. We can have a conversation about this later. I didn't want to take my whole sermon to do angelology. That ain't the point. But it's also clear that while, while we have all these, we also have the presence of what we call demons. 
And demons are fallen angels. Satan and a third of the angelic realm rebel against God sometime after the seven days of creation and before the fall in Genesis 3. We don't know when because we don't frankly know how long Adam and Eve were in the garden before the fall occurred. But sometime in there, Satan, who is the worship leader of heaven, and we could go to Ezekiel and Isaiah to work through this, but he departs, he rebels. He wants to be equal with God, and a third of the angels go with him. So out of this angelic host, we have this whole group that departs. And so these are largely called, about these five times in the Bible, these sons of God, these angelic beings, and demons are thrown into the whole myths. Apparently, they can access the throne room of God as well. This is so hard. I had multiple conversations with my wife about this this past week. Because if you've grown up in church like I have, you've heard statements like this. God can never be in the presence of evil. How many of you have ever heard that before? Is he omnipresent? Then guess what's in his presence right now? Oh, didn't want to think too deeply about that. There'll be no sin in heaven. You ever heard that one? I agree, from us. But there's every indication, particularly in Psalm 82, particularly here in Job, that there is access into the throne room of heaven at times. And so the picture we have them is is we have this angelic host who are fulfilling God's orchestrations. He tells them, go do this, go do this, go do this. They give reports back to God. Not that he doesn't know. He's just choosing to run the world this way. Just like he chooses to work through prayer, he chooses to work through 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 salvation evangelism for salvation so he's orchestrating and apparently at times included in that mix are these demons who come as well standing on the outskirts we know from jude that some of the demons are already consigned to hell we know that some walk on the earth and inhabit and possess beings and animals Uh, some when jesus would confront them they would say don't send us to hell yet and so we got demons, and we got demons that c- can access the throne room, and they are like hangers-on, lookers-on. We've got demons that are already suffering for eternity in hell. We've got other demons that are active on the earth. So we got this whole thing, and and like I said, the Bible doesn't give us lots of information on it. But that's the scene we have in Psalm eighty-two. It describes them this way: Psalm eighty-two, one. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods, lowercase g. He holds judgment. Later on, he addresses them this way. He says, you are gods, again, lowercase g, sons of the Most High. All of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. If we look to the New Testament, we can understand it maybe even a little bit better from Ephesians 6.12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities. Now, we, if, we, if we stopped right there, we'd be like, yeah, tell me something new, Steve right? Um, But that's, he's not talking about Nero or our president. He says, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Within God's kingdom, there's a hierarchy among the angels. Evidently, there's also a hierarchy among the demonic kingdom. And some of the ones who fell originally had great positions of power, and they still show up in the throne room of God. So then we have the Satan. We commonly call this individual, because there's one individual that comes to the forefront here, and the Satan also came among them. As I just said a minute ago, his history, the history of who we typically call Satan, 
worship leader of heaven, rebels against God, takes a third of the angels with him. We now all call fallen angels demons. What we are left with, though, is who is this guy? Um, How are we to understand him? Well, the reason I put that definite article there is in the Hebrew, this word Satan literally means accuser. And this same figure is given a couple different titles in the Bible. And so it actually has a lot more to do with what they do than, again, who they are. And so we're not wrong to call him Satan. he's, He's emphasizing, though, something he's doing. Devil, diablos from the Greek, means slanderer, very similar to the accuser. Uh, Telling lies or twisting things about people to make you think evil of them. That's what slander is. We see him do it with God or against God in Genesis 3. Beelzebub, he's the prince of demons. And I've just grocery listed a number of things that this evil one does. Uh, He's also called the great dragon in the book of Revelation. He's a murderer. He's one who steals, kills, and destroys, one who has the power to destroy, one who blinds the minds of people, one who possessed Judas, one who accuses believers, one who will ultimately be destroyed in hell forever. What we see from this figure, though, is unbelievable evil. Astoundingly wicked. The wicked one who wants to do nothing but destroy and harm. In short order, in the book of Job, for us by next sermon... In the book of Job, in one day, he slaughters ten of his kids. He steals all that Job owns, brings about a system that produces deep discouragement, and ultimately the loss of his own health and misery. We find ourselves then in the royal courtroom of God, where the heavenly host is assembled, and this is the one that shows up. And he has a proposition for God. And so we can fast forward and think this way, not just from a public display, but what is the Satan, the accuser, really doing? And I, and I, and I absolutely I agree with the, the translators here wholesale. I, I, I think as we move forward throughout the rest of the Bible and we get a bigger picture of who this individual is, I, I have no questions. It's Satan. It is the devil here. Uh, In Job, you did not have a full fleshing out of progressive revelation where God slowly unveils things over time. Uh, But the translators came to the point, they're like, that's who this is. And so rather than translating it, the accuser came before them. That's why they go to Satan this way, and they remove that definite article. And so we have Satan coming with a challenge. The heart of the book of Job is calling God into a courtroom. It's Job, ultimately, and we'll see this in, by chapter 3, Job inviting God into a court case that basically is saying this, prove why it's okay what you've done to me. Give me some evidence why it's okay that I've lost all my kids, all my possessions, and my own health. And the stage for that kind of thinking, that kind of courtroom drama, is being set already in chapter 1. Because we have this courtroom scene, and what Satan does is he makes two accusations. It's like an opening prosecuting attorney. And what are the two accusations? The first accusation is God loves you selfishly. You can boil it down this way. Satan is saying that Job loves the gifts of God, not the giver of the gifts. 
Satan's accusation is, does he do this for no reason? The Lord says to Satan in verse 8, Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man who fears God turns away from evil. Satan answers, the Lord says, Does Job fear God for no reason? Job, Satan is accusing Job this way. He is saying that, that Job is a gold-digging blessing seeker. And we all know what a gold digger is, right? I, I think that's pretty common euphemism. And so um, typically, I'm sure a guy can do it, but it seems unusual. Pretty young thing marries old creepy dude who has lots of money. Because the days of her suffering shall be brief, and the days of her wealth shall be long. Uh, it's from these scenarios that we actually get prenuptial agreements. Families suing because suddenly a little 20-year-old something marries their 90-year-old dad and takes millions of his dollars when he dies, and they get nothing. And it's this mindset that you are so selfish that you're willing to give up a lot to get what you want. And that's ultimately what Satan is saying about Job. You see, because to live righteously, to walk in the fear of God, to offer sacrifices, to repent when you sinned, to restore broken relationships, to choose not to steal, to not to lie, to humbly confess when you've done wrong, is not easy. It's not easy being a Christian, is it? I mean, we read the Bible and suddenly we don't get to be bitter and angry. We don't get to be revengeful or wrathful. We don't get to live that. We have to love our neighbor more than us. And that means we've got to love some pretty unlovable people. We've got to spend time with people we don't want to spend time with and we don't even like. I've got to put relationships at risk by speaking truth and telling lost friends about the gospel. Being a Christian is not easy. And so what Satan is saying is Job does those things because of what it gets him. That's the accusation, and that accusation is actually echoing down through time. So we would say this, you do what you do. You're here this morning because of what it gets you. how it's going to make you feel better about yourself. Or as I heard Bill Hybels preach a number of years ago about giving, number one motive he had for giving was it makes him feel good. And so maybe even if you don't seem to have the riches and relationships of Job, you have an inner sense of peace and well-being and that deep down you are a good person. And Satan, the accuser, is saying that is the foundation of Job's love for you. The inferred implication, the, the implied secondary accusation then is that God loves selfishly. You see, because if Job is a gold-dicking blessing seeker, then God is an insecure, unlovable manipulator. He desperately needs love, wants it, uh, feels absent without it, and so, but how's he going to get it? Because he's not lovable on his own. Uh, nobody is going to look at God, this is Satan's accusation, and say, man, I just love him. You know, it's, it's, like, it's like when, you, when, when God blessed you with a child, baby comes out, 
You know, it's like I thought I didn't know love till I got married because it's just such a unique experience. And then you have a child and and this baby or whatever is put into your care, right? Like suddenly you are responsible. And I just think it's mystical. I think it's from God ultimately. And we all know there's lots of people who are very broke, who don't love their children. We know there's lots of people, it's not their natural child, but there's just, it's a God thing. You're reflecting God, but you just love. Like, they can't do anything to earn it from you. Like, their way of earning your love is by screaming for food and pooping their pants. That ain't reeling you in. But you love them. It's lovable. Like, like I don't understand this, but I've seen girls like that. I've, I've heard this phrase before. That's so ugly, it's cute. That was my one hope, right? Like, so, um, but, like, it's just lovable. Like, there's some things just lovable, right? It's just naturally lovable. Um, you see some puppies, and you're like, that's lovable. And Satan's accusation is that God's not lovable. The accusation of the, the reason we recognize the gold digger is because we look at the guy, and we're like, he's not just batting out of his league. Like, he's on another planet here. Like, she should not be with him. What's going on here? And you look at him and you're just being like, he's just not very lovable. He's like weird and creepy and old and his wrinkles have wrinkles and he's probably dying soon. All he cares about is himself. He's unlovable. So he's got to do something to get love. So he's going to use his money to get love. And this is what Satan's accusing God of. God, you are insecure, you're unlovable, and so you have to manipulate to get people's love for you. That is a horrific accusation, isn't it? I mean, there's some deep stuff there. That's a mess. God, you're a wreck. And he's boldly making this accusation in the courtroom of God, the royal throne room of God. How desperate God must be. He's so desperate for love, he's willing to buy it. The only way to have a relationship with God is to dance at the end of his strings like a puppet. Do this to stay in my good graces or pay the price. These are offensive accusations that go to the very core of who both Job and God are. And so then let's tackle this question. Why does Job get brought up in the first place? The Lord says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. We know that God is omniscient, and so he knows exactly everything that is about to happen. So there's an unmistakable, uncomfortable reality for believers that God is orchestrating this whole scene. Never the cause of sin, never the bringer of evil. But note the language God uses for Job. There's no one like him. He's blameless and he's upright. You know what God is saying about Job? The tone of his language, the words that he's using, the context of seeing Job's love for his own children. This sounds like the kind of affectionate love the kind of a father has for their child. God is entrusting this court case this choice to this choice son of his. He's entrusting this moment to Job at the very beginning of recorded inspired scripture for us. 
Why is he doing that? Because these accusations from Satan go to the very heart of who we are as people. I mean, let's be honest. We're not very lovely people. I'm not. And you're not. And you know this. My word, before the gospel comes, the good news of salvation, in that process of understanding it, the first thing you tell somebody is you're pretty unlovely. Now, you may not use those words, right? Like, we don't look at people and say, you are one ugly spiritual person. But we tell them things like, you're a liar, and you're a thief, and you're an adulterer, and you're selfish, and you are angry and a murderer, you're a sinner. And the truth is, what Satan is doing here is he is actually giving voice to what I believe are the deep fears and insecurities of every human that's ever walked this planet, and in particular, Christians. We know that we're not lovely. We know that we're weak. We know that we're sinful, and yet we are loved by God. And on top of that, we're supposed to love God back. God loved us so much to us wicked, sinful people. He sends Jesus, his son, to die for wicked, sinful, rejecting people. And he calls us to turn from our sin, repent, and believe. Put our faith in Christ and that we would be saved. And that we are orphans that are then brought in. We are the lame who now walk. We are the dead who now live. We are the blind who now see. We are the deaf who now hear. And yet we still are wrapped up in these sinful bodies. And even after all of that, we pray and we repent. And we ask God to save us. And we know that he saved us. It's a conversion moment. And then we turn around and yell at our spouse or our child or our friend. Or we steal time from an employer. And we're left wondering, who am I? because I'm still pretty unlovely. How could I ever love God back? One of the things my parents had me do when I was growing up was read lots of Christian biographies and Fox's Book of Martyrs. And so there's a story in Fox's Book of Martyrs during the Spanish Inquisition where there's a father and his son, and they are believers. They believe in God. They confess God against the church, uh, and they are believers. And they start to experience the Spanish Inquisition, and they bring this son into the presence of the father who's being tortured to recant his faith. All he has to do is recant Protestantism. That's all he's got to deny. And he won't do it, and his son... and. I, memory search correct is somewhere 12 to 13 the son is in front of his father and then they start putting pressure on the son to recant and the son won't and the dad is saying it doesn't matter what they do to me son don't turn from jesus only and then they kill his son right in front of him man i remember reading that and i knew this about me I was terrified to have ever be put in that position. I mean, could, could I? Would I? I'd hear the story of Abraham with the knife raised above his son's chest. And I get it. Look, I get it. Hebrews tells us that Abraham by faith believed Isaac was going to be raised from the dead. Great. Wonderful. Awesome. Don't put a knife in my hand over my son's chest. And so these accusations from the Satan... You're in it for what it gets you. And would you really love God? And does God really love you? Go to the very heart of our insecurities and our fears and our self-awareness. Do we love God for who he is 
or for what it gets us. This is what is being put to the test. And this actually goes to the very core of the gospel. You see, it's a universal gospel truth. When we look at the gospel, it's actually all about love. Now, I grew up in church. I heard the gospel hundreds, if not thousands of times in my life. But I never processed the gospel that way, that it was all about love. I don't think really and truly. Now, now to be very clear, I heard I was a sinner. I knew I was condemned for my sin. I knew that God loved me. God so loved the world that he gives his only begotten son. I, I heard my teachers were good. My pastors were kind that even if I was the only sinner, if I only sinned one time, Jesus loved me so much that he would die for me. And that just blew my mind because nobody loves you like that. And so you're just like, okay, I'm, I'm going to choose by faith to believe it. But boy, I don't feel like I, I could be loved that way. Why would you love me that way? Because we live in a world that puts love economic terms. You can earn my love or you can lose my love. So to be loved that way just felt so foreign to me. I knew that I needed to repent and I knew I needed to believe, but I felt unworthy all along. And there's a part of us we say, good, you should feel unworthy because you're not worthy of his love. You haven't earned it. And that's true. But what got largely left out in my processing of it, of that mix, was my call to love God. For sure I was grateful. For sure, I knew that he loved me, but that was never the real focus for me. You know what the focus was for me? It was terror. It was deep, desperate fear. I knew I deserved hell, and I'm terrified of it. Utter feelings of unworthiness, but the truth of the gospel has always been about loving God in response to his love for us. And it's actually written across the entirety of history. And I don't remember, and so I'm not blaming. I'm not, here, I'm not blaming pastors, teachers that I ever had. I'm telling you the way my heart wrestled through this. What does God first command Israel? What is the very first commandment? Love God. That's a stunning thing. It's so funny. When when I've heard people even use the Ten Commandments as an evangelistic tool, and maybe they do, but I don't remember anybody ever saying, do you love God? Because that's what he tells you to do. Do you love God for what he gets? Or just because of who he is? It's not just there and and just for sake of time. It's love initiated by God. Deuteronomy 4, two chapters before this, says this. Because he loved your fathers, God, loved your fathers, chose their offspring after them, brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power. What God is doing is he's saying this. I've loved you, now you love me. The gospel is a call to love. And it's found right there at the start of his covenant people, the nation of Israel. When Jesus describes the gospel, he does it in terms of love, of people or things. Matthew 10, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one, despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The universal truth of the gospel, the good news of salvation is this. Salvation is repenting and believing. But we could also say it this way. Salvation is this critical mass moment. Because conversion is in a moment. You live out your salvation the rest of your life. But it does happen in a moment. Even if you can't look back and say, I know it was this date and time, Steve. That's actually not what's important. But theologically, it does happen in a moment. We could actually define it this way. It is when a person is broken over their selfishness and chooses to love God. 
his truth and his person and his word and his sacrifice and his commands more than themselves. People who don't love God are not saved people. To put it in Jesus' terms, if you love anyone or anything more than God, then you don't know him. And so I think Job becomes a terrifying moment. You're like, you got five minutes, Steve. You best bring this one home. I think it's terrifying because Job gets real scary. Because we know how feeble we are. We know how weak we are. We know how blessed we are by God. There's no hell for us. We have an advocate with the Father. We have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in us, working through us. And yet at the same time, we know how we sin, how we want to sin, how often our flesh gets the better of us. In short, we know we wrestle with selfishness and we so easily have hearts of discontentment, materialism, and warped priorities. Do I love God? Yes. Could I prove it? Could I prove it in the face of suffering? We have seen so many people grow cold to God. We've seen others fade like Jesus predicts in the parable of the four soils so that when suffering comes in the front door, their love for God goes out the back door. They're living proofs of exactly what the accuser is saying. I think it brings us as Christians to this point, I love you, God. Help my unloveliness. What test will do? How can we test it? Well, Satan comes up with a test. Touch what God has. Touch what Job has and he will curse you. It is the most significant sin that could happen. And, and Satan knows this reality. For Job to curse God after Job has just said he's the most blameless and upright guy. If Job curses God, he will be under the wrath of God. The whole world and God's plan will come crumbling down. I want to be very clear with this. If God's children are gold-digging blessing seekers, and God is an insecure, unlovable manipulator, then we might as all well die and cease to exist, because there's no point in any of it. And Satan knows this. This is what he is bringing. In the very first book of the Bible ever written, God is engaging not just with the accusations of Satan, but the fears of every believer's heart and the accusations of every sufferer. Do I really love God and does he really love me? You see, this morning when, when it says in Job that he is righteous and does he fear God for nothing, remember what Jesus says, if you love me, you obey me. First commandment is ultimately going to come, obey me because you love me. It's all bound together. Satan is saying, does Job love you for no reason? And we're going to walk through chapter after chapter after chapter of Job saying, God, do you love me? 
then why is this happening? It was a unique moment of clarity for me last year. We were doing a new members class. I think I've told some of you about this before. We are doing a new members class, and I was trying to talk about one of our core values here of community. And what we mean by that is we live in open, transparent lives with one another. So we weep with those that weep. We rejoice with those that rejoice. We build relationships, deep relationships. You love deeply. You will hurt deeply. There's been no core value that I've seen more people say, I don't want a part of that. Because it's hard and it's painful. It's difficult. It means people are going to sin against you. It means you're going to sin against other people. And so I just want to use myself as an example to help people and say, you all kind of know what's going on in my life. My dad had died. My grandmother died. My wife had stage three cancer. I'm asking, so what are ways you could minister? You know my hurts. And, and, and they did a great job. It's new members class. They're not even members yet. They're like, you're probably wondering when the next f- shoe is going to drop. Or maybe like, Job, what have I done to deserve this? And, and they were hitting at all of them. And then in a moment of clarity, my own son... He gets muted from now on in new members' classes. He says, I bet you're wondering because God has taken from you everyone. Who loved you deeply. And now his finger's on your wife. And he was right. Do I really love him? And is there any suffering that would ever strip that love from me for him? And so Job becomes this clarion call. First book ever written. God knowing what Satan's going to do, knowing how we're going to suffer in this sin-fallen world. Job becomes God saying this, I will not let these accusations in my throne room stand or in the hearts of any of my children stand. And I am going to make an open declaration that you, my children, are not gold-digging blessing seekers. And I am not an insecure, unlovable, manipulative God. But I love you, my children, and your love for me is real. That is what Job is about. It's not a test of his faith. It's a proof of his love. The whole world needs to know what it means to be loved by God and what it means to love him in return. All the pain we're going to study, all the confusion, all of the hurt, all of the fear, all of the heartache of inexplicable pain is going to minister grace to the deep fears of our hearts, peace to the agonizing heart, and love to the unlovely because it is going to prove the foundation of the gospel we hold so dear. God loves you, and he's calling you to love him. Oh, God, help my unlove. Don't. Suffering doesn't mean confusion, anger, fear, sorrow doesn't mean that you don't love God. And it certainly doesn't mean he doesn't love you. May we journey together as a gospel community who knows and loves God and is gentle with one another in seasons of suffering, pointing our hearts back to this core truth because the whole world needs to know this love is real. Father, we thank you, even as we are terrified by these things, we thank you because even this is a sign of your love. You love us so much that you have this codified, written down for us to process through, to work through, 
You don't intend for us to even do it alone, but to do it in a community where it is safe, Father. May this be a safe place to process through the grief and the hurt and the pains of life as our hearts are exposed, and that sometimes, Lord, when our hearts are exposed, there's ugly things there. But that's okay. Father, you mentioned Job as a loving daddy would, knowing what's about to happen. Father, thank you that in ways that we don't even understand this week, the names of your children have been uttered in heaven. And Father, we thank you for that. And so with full hearts, overwhelmed by your love, we pray together as a people, help our unlove. Like that dear dad who said, I believe, help my unbelief. We say we love, but help our unloveliness, Father. Draw us deeper in. Remind us of the truth that as we draw near to you, you draw near to us. Thank you for dealing with us gently and kindly and patiently in the midst of our struggles. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our last song this morning is, Oh Great God, please stand and sing.